I hope you all had a, a very happy Thanksgiving, and uh, I hope that you are looking forward to being here this afternoon at 5.30. Actually, the Armadillo Swing Band is getting started at 5 o'clock, so you want to be here for that, but you'll especially want to be here by 5.30, if not sooner, because the Christmas season begins at 5.30 Central Standard Time. Because the whole season revolves around the lighting of the green service. So I hope that you'll be here for that. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, this this message was a little bit difficult in order to find a direction, and here's why. Thanksgiving is past, so I couldn't talk about that. And since the Christmas season doesn't start until 5.30 Central Standard Time, some would say maybe 5, uh, I couldn't talk about Christmas either because that was wrong. So I, I kind of thought, well, maybe we'll just talk about the fact that we're taking a break, or a lot of people are taking a break. I know many of you, of course, are working as normal, but we do know that a number of college students, in fact, everybody's in college, is basically only going remote after Thanksgiving. A lot of the classes were remote anyways, but now the students are staying at home and not going back to campus because of the concern. You don't want people who've been with family and a bunch of people... Uh, all Thanksgiving going back and spreading germs and all the rest, which, by the way, I did my part over this last Thanksgiving. Not only was it just me, Nathan, Shelby, and Gina, but I went door-to-door making sure there were less than 10 people in the house. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding about that. Uh, but, anyway, students are not going back to the campuses, although Shelby has chosen to go back to her apartment rather than stay with Mom and Dad, which is a tremendous mystery to everybody uh, around our house, but I digress. A lot of us are taking breaks, and so the question ought to be, well, how do I take this break intentionally? How do I take the break in such a way as to honor Jesus? So I asked for some help in the direction to this message. I asked Gina, my family, I asked uh, the ministerial staff, if you were able to suggest people take one break, a break from something, what would it be? If people could take a break, what do you wish that break would entail. And so I got responses from, from all the ministerial staff, and I'm using uh, the chief response from my wife. And so if you don't like the points of this morning's message, call Gina, uh, call Mark and Christy and, you know, Brett and Ellen and Robin, because they told me what to preach. All right. So here we go. What we're going to do is kind of examine these things, and hopefully this honors Jesus, and we're going to think about this biblically. But if people could take a break, what ought the break be during your break? Uh, number one, people maybe need to take a break from busyness. This came from, from Gina and this came from Robin. People need to take a break from busyness. And this is actually a tremendously biblical point. You may remember this scene. Thank you, Mark, for bringing this over. Uh, you might remember the scene from uh, the Bible where Jesus, this is in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, is paying a visit to the house of a woman named Martha. And she, of course, is very busy doing all of these different tasks that revolve around hosting a party, hosting a meal. Uh, But in spite of all of her well-intentioned, good, uh, lavish efforts, by the end of the meal, Jesus doesn't necessarily compliment her. He pays the ultimate compliment to Mary, who has an entirely different posture about the event. So let's go ahead and read about this together. This is uh, Luke chapter 10. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. 
While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. You know, by the way, it doesn't usually work out real well when you tell Jesus what to do. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But one thing, only one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, uh, Mary apparently has not much concern about pulling off a a successful social event. And uh, as the story finishes... Jesus compliments Mary for choosing what is best and what is best and what is the only necessary thing, as it turns out, is to sit at the feet of Jesus and enjoy him and listen to his word. Uh, Now, some of you might be thinking, is this really an entirely appropriate passage with Christmas on the horizon? And I think it actually is. Uh, Mayo Mathers is a a lady who contributes to Curia.com, which is a resource for Christian women. And uh, she says that she didn't, she recognizes that she's kind of a Martha type, and those of you who are Martha types are okay with being Martha types. And she, she thought, thought, well, I'm a Martha type, and uh, Christmas brings out the Martha in me because well, I'm shopping for gifts, and I enjoy cooking for the guests, and I like hosting the parties. And she didn't necessarily see that as being problematic until. One Christmas season, she went to the church's annual Christmas pageant, and she had this sort of breakthrough moment. Let me read it to you from from her perspective. She said, As I sat in the candlelit sanctuary, absent-mindedly listening to the peaceful strains of Silent Night, I wrestled mentally with a list of things to be done. When the congregation stood to sing carols, my lips moved unconsciously to the words while my brain mulled over various menus for our annual Christmas Eve buffet. As in every Christmas pageant, the usual parade of bathrobe-draped children marched down the center aisle. A pseudo-weary Mary and Joseph shook their heads in dismay as the innkeeper turned them away. Having watched so many similar renditions of the Christmas story, it had become commonplace to me. Realizing this, I felt a stab of guilt and bowed my head. Father, I prayed, let me see the story through your eyes tonight. The young girl portraying Mary began to sing a lullaby to the child in her arms. Her voice was so pure, so full of love and awe, that I stared at her, transfixed, my distracted musings forgotten. Suddenly, it was as if the congregation had disappeared, as if I had been transported back in time to the actual stable in Bethlehem. As I listened to her song, wonder and immense gratitude settled upon me. Into my heart, God whispered, if ever there was a time to worship me, it's now. This season is about me only. But each year, you crowd me out with the inconsequential. And Mary uh, Mayo Mathers, she ends this little article with these words, Beautiful, delicious dinners are nice. Just right delights are delightful. Gifts are delightful. But I'm learning that only one thing really matters. While I tend to be more like Martha at Christmas, tis the season to be merry. Now, you might think that in a message where I've allowed a half dozen people to give me the points and tell me what to preach, which that's okay, I'm not bitter. Uh, It it might be disjointed, but it's not. And you might think that 
this is going to be, don't do this, don't do that. And who likes that kind of moralistic stuff? I don't. But, but you'd be wrong if you're thinking that. Because there is a central theme to all of this. And the central theme to the message, even though the points are very different, is when we take a break, we can make our break sacred by taking it in such a way as to give Jesus room. And when you give Jesus room, Jesus always fills the space. Jesus will take as much as he possibly can take in terms of giving all that he has to give. And what Jesus wants to give is all of who he is, but we're not often in a posture in order to receive it. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a common theme in the Beatitudes, and that is you have to come to God empty-handed in order to receive what it is that he wants to give. And if what God wants to give is nothing less than God, the more empty space that you create, the, the better. And so if your life is filled with busyness, God gets crowded out. And that's the last thing that we want to see happen in a season that's supposed to revolve entirely around him. And the other thing I think that's worth noting is whenever we make everything about Jesus, which is not just supposed to be Christmas, it's all the time. And we talked about this last week in terms of worship. When we make our lives revolve entirely around him, here's what happens. We benefit inevitably. Worship is all about the Lord. It, our lives ought to be all about him. All of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our heart, all of it about him all the time. When that happens, we benefit. Because when God is where he needs to be and we are where we need to be, we see the world for what it is in the way that we should and we're able to engage in wisdom and to the glory of God. What's good for God, him being where he needs to be, is also good for us because we're, we are where we need to be. And one of the things that is absolutely true about you and about me is that we do need breaks. There does need to be a time of refueling and, and renewal. Uh, I have disregarded those times in my life where I thought I need to, I need to refuel, I need to take a break. And you, you will uh, inevitably end up getting hurt in some way or another when you, you don't take the breaks that you know that you need to have. Now, in the Bible, there were six days of work and the seventh day of rest. Some people, they need two days of rest. I don't know that that's exactly right either, so let's not go overboard, but you've got to refuel uh, a terrible, tragic example of this comes from a guy named uh, Frank Allegretti. He's a 64-year-old pilot and uh, very well-respected. He basically crashed a plane he was flying into a cornfield because he just disregarded the fuel gauge. And his wife, in an interview after his death, was just explaining to the reporter, my husband was well-regarded, the most, most meticulous, the safest pilot you're ever going to meet. And you think, well, that just doesn't make sense. Why would the safest pilot you're ever going to meet crash his plane due to fuel exhaustion? Well, apparently, that is a very common thing. Pilots who know better, pilots who've been in the business for two decades, commonly will disregard their fuel gauge. The uh, Department of, what is it, the uh, uh, NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, says that in, in the most recent five-year period of time that was measured, 238 crashes happened, 29 lives were taken, primarily because of fuel exhaustion. The department leader for aviation safety, I thought he said something interesting. He said, I can, he says, it's surprising to me that there is a group of pilots 
who will knowingly push it, thinking, I can make it the last couple of miles, and they come up short. If you don't take the break from your busyness, creating space for God, allowing Jesus to be who he is, because the only thing that's necessary is not finishing the project on time or whatever the case may be, there, the only thing that's necessary is for your life to revolve around Jesus. And when you live your life in such a way as to disregard that central truth, it will hurt you. It really can. So for some of you, you need to take a break from busyness. Now, there's another point that, that I got from uh, Brett Haas and uh, from Ellen Haley, and that is people need to take a break from social media. Now, some of you might be asking, well, now, where is that in the Bible? Uh, okay, that's a good question. It's not really in there, but... Let me tell you what is. Here's just some wisdom direction for things like this. This comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and then Paul repeats himself again in chapter 10, verse 23, because this statement is so important, he repeats himself twice in the same letter. Here's what he says. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be enslaved or be mastered by anything. Uh, when it comes to routines and habits in our lives, we have three questions to ask, not one. One question is, is this permissible? But there's another question, and that is, is this beneficial for me? And then the last question, which helps to answer the second question, if you can't answer it on your own, is, am I mastered by this? Am I enslaved to this? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 adds a little depth to this question. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. Now, we don't have time to get into that verse in the context, but the question remains, are you enslaved to this? Are you mastered by this? So let's just ask these questions of social media. Is, is it permissible for you? Well, I think so. I mean, are you permitted to call on the telephone or text people or send out emails? This is just a form of mass communication. Is it permissible to participate in social media? Well, of course. I, I can't see any reason that that would not be permissible. But the problem is not that it's permissible. The problem is we're not asking the next questions. And the next question is, is this beneficial for me? And in some cases, and I, I'm not grading everybody else's paper, this is up to you, but in some cases, no, it's absolutely not beneficial to you. It's just not. I, uh, and, and some of you, some of you know this. Let me just kind of uh, point this out. And I think it's worth uh, going there, just in terms of the amount of time. There's a guy named Charles Chu uh, who uh, wrote a book, uh, not a book, an article for Quartz, and he said basically, if people, your average American, quit the social media, they could read about 200 books a year. And you say, how do you do the math? Well, the, the math is real simple. On average, it takes 417 hours to read 200 books. Now, these books, obviously, you know, average book is not like Plato's Republic or the Bible or something like that. I mean, you know, a lot of books are rather thin and, you know, shallow or whatever. So you, average book, maybe two hours. He says you could read 200 books if you just get out the social media. In fact, you could probably do more. Here's how he explains it. 417 hours. That sure feels like a lot. But what does 417 hours really mean? Let's try to get some more perspective. Here's how much a single, how much time a single American spends on social media and TV in a year. 608 hours on social media. 
1,642 hours on TV. Wow, that's 2,250 hours per year spent on trash. And this is not written from a Christian perspective. He's just calling it like it is. If those hours were spent reading instead, you could be reading over a thousand books a year. Now, again, this is not written from a Christian perspective, but there is a challenge for those of us who are believers. And, and, and the challenge that he ends with is this. He says, here's the simple truth behind reading a lot of books or the Bible. It's not that hard. We have all the time we need. The scary part, the part we all ignore, is that we are too addicted, too weak, and too distracted to do what we all know is important. Could it be that social media is just busyness in a very lazy form? And again, we have to get back to the question, am I giving room to Jesus sitting at his feet and listening to his word, or is social media somehow, in some respect or another, crowding him out? If you spend 618 hours a year on social media and no time ever reading the Bible, that's like, there's some, something's out of whack there. We're, we're missing the one thing, the only thing that is necessary. Besides all that, is this beneficial? A lot of people have concluded this is not beneficial for marriages. A survey was taken uh, of the, uh, the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers and 81% of the lawyers who sit there and they see marriages end year after year after year, they got the front row seat. You know, they believe, 81% believe that marriages are ended primarily or at least a major contributing factor to social media. These lawyers came up with five reasons they believe that, that uh, social media is destructive to a marriage. And all the quotes here are coming from uh, divorce lawyers. Number one. Screen time got in the way of FaceTime. Instead of getting into bed and discussing how each other's day was, couples opt to be on, a social, on social media. They engage with friends, acquaintances, or even followers during times that they would otherwise be growing and improving their marital relationship. Put down your device, ask your spouse how their day was, and listen. Uh, number two, reconnecting with old partners led to an affair. And I've had a front row seat to that as a pastor. Your former partners bring you back to a time when life was less complicated and your greatest challenge was a term paper. Some get so caught up in the romance that they move from posts to emails, texts, calls, and then secret rendezvous. Even if things don't work out with the old fling, the temporary checking out from your marriage can cause irreparable harm. Number three, everyone else's marriage appeared perfect in comparison. As, as you, you know, used to be keeping me up with the Joneses, and now, like, our lives are threatened. You can't keep up with us anymore because it's people all over the globe who get Photoshopped lives from Photoshopped angles. And everything looks so much better when it's Photoshopped. As you scroll your newsfeed and, and see so many seemingly perfect marriages, there is a tendency to compare your own relationship to the perceived perfection of another's. The weakness in your own marriage may become more obvious. And number four, too much personal information was shared online. Intimate details about your relationship and marriage should never be exposed on social media. It causes distrust between partners and it can backfire if you and your partner divorce. And then finally, the single life started looking more and more attractive. The social media posts of your single friends look so much better than your own life because many people's posts are staged to portray their own lives in the most positive light. There is a reason the selfie stick was one of the most popular holiday gifts last year. So, is social media permissible? Well, sure, it's just communication form. Is it beneficial? 
for you. You can't answer this for everybody else. Is this beneficial for you? And for me, I don't think it's terribly beneficial because I happen to be kind of obsessive-compulsive. My son knows that about me. Maybe he didn't. Um, is it, but you don't answer the question for everybody else. Is it beneficial for you? Probably, in some cases, no. And then there's the third question that you have to ask that helps you to answer the second question. And that is, am I enslaved to this? Uh, am I being mastered by this? And oftentimes, the answer is, absolutely, you are. There's a conversation between Mary Jo Sales and some teenager at a mall somewhere, and, and, and the teenager basically explained, social media is killing us. And she was talking about teenagers and her friends. She said, social media is killing us. And Mary Jo Sales asked a rather logical question, and that was, well, then, why don't you get rid of it? If social media is killing you, why don't you set it aside? Why don't you let go? And that seems to make perfect sense, doesn't it? If something's destroying you, you get rid of it. If something's killing you, you set it aside. So why don't you get rid of it? And the response from the teenager was, well, if we did, we wouldn't have any lives. Okay, now, you can put that into spiritual or scriptural terms. Let me, let me do that for you. If I got rid of my idol, it would destroy me. You know, an idol is something that is good. It's a good thing that you make an ultimate thing. An idol is not just a little piece of wood. It's, it's anything that you value, but you value it too highly. It could, be, it could be your marriage. It could be your family. It could be your job. If you take this good thing and you make it your ultimate thing, it's become your idol. And it will destroy you. Even though an idol isn't real, it's just a dead piece of wood, or it's actually, it doesn't, it's not living, it still has the power of death. And if social media has you enslaved... It's destroying you, and you've got to smash that idol, because if you don't smash the idol, the idol will turn around and it will smash you. And you know the stories, and I know the stories of how people have lost reputations, they've lost jobs, they've lost relationships, because they were enslaved to social media. And even if you don't feel like you're enslaved, you know that it's the breeding ground for envy. Because of all the photoshopped lives and the photoshopped angles, and, and it's produced something that actually therapists now call comparisonitis. We've always compared ourselves to the Joneses or to the brother or the sister or the friends and, and all of the rest. That's nothing new, but social media is or can produce envy on steroids, which is why social media is a great place for advertising. If you want to advertise, if you want to tell people about something that they don't have and you want them to have it, you go to the social media because social media is largely, in many cases, about comparisonitis. And you can't escape it intellectually. You can't escape it just with the power of the will. And if it were not for envy, some people's lives would implode because they've been hollowed out and they're just, they're just filled with always pursuing what it is that they don't have and comparing themselves to other people. Is that healthy? Are you enslaved to it? Hopefully not. You can use it for good. But you may need to take a break. You may need to take a 40-day break or something like that where you kind of cut it off for a while. Then next year, after the year starts, you re-engage in a way that's healthy. I don't know where you're coming from. I just know, is it beneficial? That's a question. Uh, is it permissible? Is it beneficial? And am I enslaved to this? And, and if you can't answer those other two questions in a way that would be pleasing to Jesus, here's the problem. You're crowding him out in some respect or another. Your, your addiction is crowding out Jesus. And you need to smash that idol so that Jesus can be for you who it is that he needs to be. There's another suggestion that was given to me 
uh, concerning, you know, what is it that people need to take a break from? And, uh, and, and this, this third point, uh, what do people need to take a break from, comes from Mark Rich and Christy Rich. They kind of gave slightly different responses, but it was largely the same thing. People need to take a break from trying to control or controlling outcomes. Now, it's okay to want to control things that have been given to you that are under your control and your authority. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, con- you know, being a good manager is a sign of being a good believer. You need to be a good steward of what it is that God has given you. But if you're trying to control things that are beyond your control, that's actually a sign that something is wrong in your relationship with the Lord. Now, you would think that those of us who are believers would not have trouble with control. Because if you're a believer, here's what you have said. You've said, Jesus is Lord. And what that means is, I don't have to be in control. He's in control. I'm just the sheep. He's the shepherd. And I know that what Jesus expects from me is to follow him. And if I cannot follow him and follow him blindly, then I'm not actually trusting in Jesus. If you don't trust Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not a Christian. If you can't give Jesus control, if he's not your leader, well then, you're not a believer. It all gets wrapped up together. Trusting him, following him, not using him as your advisor or counselor, but submitting to his leadership, going where it is that he goes, without asking him to tell you where he's taking you. If you don't trust him with your life, you don't trust him. You're not a believer. I I love the way that John Ortberg puts this. He he compares being a Christian to basically turning over the keys of the car. Now, I'm familiar with this. You're familiar with this if you're a parent. If you're a parent, you might remember how when your child was was born, and in most cases in the hospital, but if you're like Veronica, you can have a baby, and then you're playing in the park three hours later. But that's okay. The rest of us are not bitter. Uh, But for the most part, if you had a child and they were in the hospital, you remember what it was like to put that baby, your son or your daughter, in that car seat for the first time. You put him in the vehicle, and I can remember Nathan. He came out with a full head of hair. It was amazing. Still can't grow a good mustache, but his hair was really, really thick. And uh, it looked like little Elvis, this cute little thing. And so we remember putting him in the the car seat. The car seat was small, but Nathan was swallowed up by that car seat. You know how babies are, they can't hold their heads. It was like super tiny. And I did, for the first time, what I had not done probably in years. I intentionally drove under the speed limit. And I had my foot on the brake going through green lights. Anybody here do that? Good for you. It's terrible. Anyways, (laughs) I don't get it. But I remember. Now, I remember. Well, I'm kidding. I, I remember. Man, I was so careful. Get to the stop sign count to three before moving, for, you know, just like super careful and nervous because you got that child in your car with you. You, remember, you know what that was like? You remember that? The next really anxious moment that you have with your kid in your car comes about 16 years later. And they have the license and, and you say, why don't you drive? And it's a little bit unnerving because up until this point, largely, you've been in the driver's seat. They've been in the, they've been in the passenger seat. They've been in the ride-along position. As the parent, you've chosen the, de- the destination, largely. And you have basically chosen the route. 
and you've chosen the speed, you've chosen everything, but when they get into the driver's seat and out of the ride-along seat, that means you get in the ride-along seat, and that means you're trusting someone else with the keys, with the car that you're in. That's what it means to be a believer. There's a big difference between having Jesus in the ride-along position and Jesus in the driver's seat. When he's in the ride-along position and you always drive the car, well, here's what that's communicating. I'm the good shepherd. You're the, you're the pet sheep. I'm the parent. You're the child. I want you, and there's a lot of people that would say this to Jesus. And, and the good thing about Jesus is he's so gracious. He will take this, really. He doesn't want it, prefer it like this. But a lot of people, they want Jesus in the car, uh, you know, so they have somebody to talk to. Someone to pass the time, and you know, it might be handy to have Jesus in the right along position because you might have a flat or you might need some healing or something. He could be very useful to you if he's with you. But that's not the same as saying, Jesus, you're the good shepherd and I'm the sheep. Jesus, you're the Lord and I'm not. That's very different. And it's a scary thing when you get to the point where you submit your life to Jesus and you trust in him fully. The Bible tells us it's over in the book of Romans. Romans chapter uh, 10, verses 9 and 10, talks about how if you, can, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Those, those things go together. But it's not enough to simply say, well, I know who Jesus is. I know he's, the, he's God. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. I know all that about him. I even know that he is God because he beat death. You also have to announce him as Lord. And when you announce him as Lord, what you're communicating is, is I'm not. And I trust him more than me. He'll be in the driver's seat. Now, it's a big change for a lot of people who've been used to Jesus in the ride-along position because the thing is, he's a really good friend. He's a good, he's someone to talk to. He will listen to you and he wants to help you. And that's how Jesus is toward people before they ever come to faith in him. But just because Jesus has been a good friend to you and has been helping you, maybe even healing you and counseling you along the way, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be in the driver's seat, that's the change from Jesus is the person who has my back to me being the person who has his. And just because Jesus has your back doesn't mean that you're a believer. Just because you have Jesus in the car doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It's a kind of scary thing, though, when you give Jesus the keys because when you give him the keys, all of a sudden, you know what it is. Your life is in his hands. My wallet, if he's in the, in the driver's seat, my wallet is his. And, and my decisions belong to him. And my ego belongs to him. And my body and my sexual decisions belong to him. My relationships and the way I do relationships belongs to him. My life is not in my hands anymore. Jesus is the one who's driving the vehicle. And, and as a, you know, as a jerk that I am sometimes, I want to do the ride along. Hey, Jesus, turn this way. And it's not like we don't have disagreements on occasion. I'm always wrong. But I know he's in the driver's seat, and so I have to repent and repent, and he changes my mind about things. But here's the nature of the relationship. Even though I'm kind of resistant a lot as somebody who's growing in the Lord, I know he's in the driver's seat, and, and I'm not. And that's a really nervous thing to put him in the driver's seat. But here's what you learn pretty quickly, if, if not in a matter of weeks or months. Jesus is a really good driver. And when you are accustomed to him driving, after a while, you, you relax. 
And after a while, you kind of like it that he's driving because you can enjoy the scenery and you know he's going to get you there real nice and safe and sound and you're going to enjoy the ride. And yeah, you'll still talk to him. He'll still be your friend and he's still available to you. But he's not just checking the blind spots for you anymore. He's just driving. And that's a whole different kind of experience with Jesus in the car. So you ought to know, if you're a believer, what it's like to relinquish control. But here's what you also know, unfortunately. If somebody can acknowledge Jesus is beaten death, he's risen from the dead, he is God, he is the power of life and death, he is in charge, but not of my life. If you're dealing with somebody who says, yeah, I know who he is, but I'm not going to let God be God. I know that he deserves control because he is who he is and he did that for me, but I'm not giving it to him. If you're dealing with somebody who will not relinquish control to Jesus, they won't let anybody else control much of anything, even their own lives. And so when we talk about, hey, maybe you ought to take a break from control, you know what we're really talking about? Giving Jesus room to be Jesus. Because Jesus at his best is not the passenger. Jesus at his best is the driver. So maybe, just maybe, if you're overly controlling, trying to control things that are not under your control or never meant to be under your control, maybe you need to take a break from being controlling so Jesus can be who Jesus is. And in the process, you'll give a lot of other people a really nice break too. And you'll give yourself a break, which is fantastic. You ever been on a long drive and somebody else took over and you're really glad that they did and then after a while you kind of got used to it? That's how it is as a believer. At first it's really weird and then after a while you couldn't imagine it being any other way. There's another thing that's sort of tied to this and this comes from Robin and I know she already made a contribution but when you're extra nice, you get to go twice. And so uh, Robin also suggested, "Here's, here's what I wish people would take a break from. I wish people would take a break. Take a break from trying to uh, fix everyone else's problems. Now, you say, that sounds, sounds kind of weird. Well, here's what I think what she's getting at. And this is biblical. Uh, address your own mess. That's really biblical information or direction. This comes in uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now maybe, and I'm not saying this necessarily applies to you, okay, maybe it doesn't. Uh, But maybe you ought to give everybody else a break and address your own mess. Maybe you, you ought to acknowledge a little bit more readily your own particular need Uh, for the grace of Jesus, not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but the empowerment for living the kind of life that you need to live. Now, We just spend a lot of time talking about how we really need to help other people who uh, do not have a relationship with Jesus to come into a relationship with Jesus, and we do, but that's entirely different than mucking around in everybody else's lives at the expense of paying attention to what's going on in our own. It is entirely possible for us to be grandstanding, and this is another thing, by the way, with regards to social media, People grandstand. You know what that is? We're trying to fix everybody else's problems and fix all the rest of the world. And and if we get too far along the road in those ways, we start putting ourselves in a category that's different than the others that we're actually trying to address and fix. And that is a huge, huge mistake. If we take a break from the grandstanding for just long enough, maybe we would acknowledge that we are every bit 
in equal need as everybody else for the grace, the forgiveness, the empowerment that comes from Jesus. And if you're not making room for that grace and that forgiveness and that empowerment, well, you're not going to get it. Because again, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. You've got to come to God with an empty space for him to fill it. Otherwise, if you're full of yourself, you're getting nothing. And that's kind of a tragedy. It reminds me of this, this scene in, uh, in the book of Luke. Great book. You know? uh, in, in Luke, there's this occasion when the Pharisees and the scribes come to the disciples of Jesus. And when they come to the disciples, they ask him, why, why do y'all eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus speaks up for the disciples and he replies... It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have come to call the, not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The big problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is not that they were, you know, really bad people, like worse than everybody else. They, I don't think they were that bad, comparatively. They didn't recognize they were as bad off as everybody else. And consequently, since they did not recognize that, they didn't get what the sinners and the tax collectors got because the sinners and the tax collectors at least recognized their need. The Pharisees didn't recognize their own need. And when you don't recognize your own need, you don't get what it is that Jesus has to offer because what Jesus has to offer has to be given to those who are ready to receive it. And if you don't recognize your own particular need, you're getting nothing. You're not getting Jesus. So again, it gets back to this common theme. When you take a break, you need to take a break from the things that actually broke the body of Jesus and caused his blood to spill because unless you take a break from those things, you're not going to get what it is that Jesus wants to give you, and that is everything that he is. There's this real common word that we use for acknowledging our own need in a consistent basis. It's the word repentance. It's a, a word that wasn't originally a, a religious word at all. It just had to do with a, a culture of nomadic people. And so if you're out in a desert or in a wilderness, you're going to lose your way. It's easy to get lost in the wilderness. And sometimes you're going to recognize, hey, I'm off track. And that's the first act of repentance, recognizing I'm going in the wrong direction. The second act of repentance is you actually start going in the right direction. And in the midst of the repentance is also a little bit public because everybody else recognizes because you have to say it implicitly, if not explicitly, I've been going in the wrong direction and now I need to go in the right direction. That's repentance. You kind of turn things around and you recognize, I need this. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need change in my life. And when you're only focused on everything else, not on yourself, you're not recognizing it. Now, some of you might be saying, hey, uh, look, I haven't really repented in a while. Well, okay, number one, that's kind of weird. Number two, you want some help? You've got to start where the Pharisees were. What the Pharisees needed more than anything else was repentance of their lack of repentance. You've got to repent. And as strange as this is, in some respect or another, you say, well, I just don't feel like repenting or I can't see it. Repent of your blindness. Repent of your unrepentance. It's a starting point. And the good news is when you start down this path of repentance, the good news is because you're making room for Jesus, you experience Jesus in a way that you haven't been before. Because the way the, the, the Pharisees were was self-righteous. I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. Everything's good. It's all their problem. When you're full of yourself, 
you cannot receive anything from the Lord. So when we talk about taking a break, we're not just talking about do this, don't do that. No, no, no. This is fundamentally spiritual. As you take a break, take a break from your busyness because there's only one thing that is absolutely necessary. When you take a break, take a break from the social media if it's crowding out Jesus and your life being lived at his feet. As you take a break, take a break from your need to control everything because that is a fundamental denial of the lordship of Jesus. And take a break from grading everybody else's paper but your own. And as a result of taking a break in maybe the best of ways, maybe at the end of the season, you will have experienced Jesus in a way that you haven't maybe for months or even years. So as we take a break together, we're going to take a break right now before we break bread together and remember the body that was broken for us so that any breaks that we take would only be a step toward being connected in a way that we haven't been. Christians don't believe in breaks for breaks' sake. We don't believe in emptiness for the sake of emptiness. That's an Eastern mindset. Om, om, I'm going to empty myself of myself. Why? That's kind of a pursuit in and of itself in Eastern religions. For Christians, we always only empty ourselves because it's the only posture from which we can be filled. So let's take a break and encounter Jesus, even now, in a way that's meaningful. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, thank you for, uh, for breaking us in the best of ways, that we would be remade in the image of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have an agenda to fill us. May we not be so foolish as to remain in a posture that would somehow keep you at bay. And, and that's why you praised Mary. Because all she did was sit there as an empty vessel allowing you to fill her. That's what you want. So Lord, if there's anything that I did miss, I'm sure that I did, help us to take the breaks that we need so that we would be filled so that you would be able to give all of you to us and we would know you for who you are. Forgive us our busyness. Forgive us our control issues. Forgive us our obsessions and, and idols. Forgive us our self-righteousness where we would stand in a posture of superiority to anyone else. We are... Hungry people helping other hungry people to find bread, as how it's been put. And this is true. We, other people do need the Lord, but we acknowledge other people need the Lord because we need him every bit as much. Humble us, empty us, and fill us. This is our prayer. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.